become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, January 17th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, here with my guest, Alex Doman. Alex Doman is founder and CEO of Advanced Brain Technologies, and most folks tuned in probably know Alex from his work with the listening program. More recently, Alex co-authored the new book titled, Healing at the Speed of Sound, How What We Hear Transforms our brains and our lives, from music to silence and everything in between. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Terry. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. And let's start off with a pretty fundamental question. What is sound? Well, as you ask that question, Terry, jets are taking off from Hill Air Force Base behind my office here at Advanced Brain Technologies. And what, I, what I'm hearing and what the listeners are hearing is vibration. And vibration is everywhere. It's something that's with us 24-7, 365. And hearing is our first sense to develop in utero. So our, our brains have been designed to first sense and perceive sound. So it plays a very important role in our life. So what is the difference between sound and hearing? Well, sound is, is the vibration. So this is the, the physical occurrence. And hearing is our sense of that vibration. So it's our ability to perceive and hear that vibration that's in our environment. Okay, I guess that answers an age-old question I had about a term paper I once wrote. I, I actually did a paper uh, for a psychology class on if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? And I guess you've just answered that. It does make a sound. It, it does make a sound, but if there's no no person there to perceive it, then we don't know that the, that it, it, the happening occurred. <laughs> okay. How does sound organize neural activity and also grow our brain? Wow, that is that is a, a question that I wish we had a few hours for, but give, given the, the time we have together, I think it's first of all helpful to understand that the, the effects of sound and music on our psychophysiology is an extremely complex process. And we're coming to know more and more through different branches of auditory neuroscience, music effects research, research in psychoacoustics. But think of it this way. 
as with all of our sensory channels, all of the sensory input channels coming into the brain. In early development, that sensory input is helping to prime the auditory pathways and actually do what's called pruning, help to prune synaptic connections to help the brain form and strengthen the routes with which auditory information is going to be carried through our life. And how it prunes and creates those pathways is based on how frequently certain sounds, uh, the sounds of mother's voice, of singing, of reading to a child, or of noise in their environment, uh, conversely, actually lay down these patterns for sound to travel throughout the brain. And as these pathways are reinforced through positive imp- input, or they can atrophy with sensory deprivation, a lack of input, uh, a hearing loss is a, an example where we have sensory deprivation because our hearing isn't working and those pathways aren't reinforced, or they can be disrupted through other factors and actually uh, damaged. So just from a very basic standpoint, sensory stimulation can stimulate the brain in positive or negative ways, and it is the type of stimulation that we provide the brain with that impacts how how the brain grows or is shaped by that input through something called brain plasticity, the brain's natural ability to change itself in response to its environment. And how long does this type of neurodevelopment take place insofar as these pathways being impacted either positively or negatively by uh, sound? Uh, as long as we're alive, we're, our brain is impacted by uh, the sound in our environment. You know, there, there are definitely critical uh, windows in early development that actually begin in utero where the brain is uh, being informed by the sounds that are being experienced in the uterine environment. Uh, that is beginning to shape our experience and relationship with sound uh, while the brain, you know, auditory pathways are being myelinized or very critical windows. But truth is, throughout our lifespan, uh, sound has a tremendous influence on our brain's uh, function and shape. You know, when I was pregnant, I read a series of books. I think it was something like, um, you know, how to how to grow your baby's brain or how to make your baby a genius at math. or um, it, These were books put out by the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential uh, around Philadelphia. And um, was there, how do you feel about um, there being anything to talking to your uh, child while they're still in utero or playing music up to your belly, things like that? Well, this is an important conversation for me. You know, those institutes in Philadelphia were founded by my grandfather and great uncle. My my great uncle that that worked wrote those early books and was really a proponent of early infant stimulation. And you know, the basic concept you know holds true that if we provide the right input to our child uh, with appropriate frequency, intensity, and duration, we can have an influence on their brain's development. And in fact, I have a 24-month-old son uh, that we work with quite extensively to have very structured, fun activities to help support his brain development. You know, in terms of what's happening in utero, the fact that the fetus hears is indisputable. Uh, The amount of scientific research that's been done into fetal uh, auditory perception is quite overwhelming, and we understand that around 
16 to 22 weeks in utero, uh, the fetus is in fact hearing and being influenced by auditory input, not through the air environment, but through the vibration that goes through the amniotic fluid uh, and actually influences the the hearing system of the baby, both the vestibular portion, which is our our balance mechanism, and and our hearing portion, which we need for language and communication. So there is something to providing your unborn child with good, positive auditory input that doesn't mean putting headphones on mom's belly because we actually um, don't know if there could be a negative influence from too much vibration coming through that belly. But just even the sounds that that child is hearing in their immediate environment, uh, the father, the mother um, is heard and noise is heard as well. So we want to reduce and minimize the noise in uh, in utero and keep good positive sounds in utero and keep in mind that the music and sound that mom is experiencing has an effect on her stress hormones. And those stress hormones naturally are, are shared and affected by the fetus. So having mom in a good, healthy, nurturing auditory environment is very important to uh, your baby's health. Absolutely. Uh, and I asked you that question about how long this type of neurodevelopment takes place. I interviewed uh, Kathy Darrow, an RDI consultant, last week. And I know with RDI, there is, um, you know, there's talk that once the regressive signs of autism um, start, parents sometimes um, correspondingly draw back uh, because the, the child isn't communicating as, as would have been expected in a neurotypical developmental pattern. And so um, I assume that by drawing back on, on speaking, and, and this is not to, to blame parents in the least, um, the whole, all of the issues with the autism epidemic are, are very bewildering, and um, everybody is just wading through it the best they can. But I would assume that when these regressive patterns um, begin, it's really important to keep to uh, I'll say pump up the volume. But what I mean is to keep the sound going, keep the conversation going. Absolutely, because we we need we need ex- exposure to language to communicate, and it's it's a form of sensory deprivation, if you will. And and, and again, it's a very natural response when the the parent isn't getting feedback from the child to communicate less, but communicating more and communicating appropriately is absolutely important if we're seeing signs of regression. I completely agree. Okay, so then. Um, in regressive autism, a lot of times um, the children are displaying signs of auditory hypersensitivity. They're, they're covering their ears, that, and people might feel like they're annoying, uh, annoying the child or causing the child discomfort. So let's figure out what's the difference between sound and noise, and how can we navigate this terrain of auditory hypersensitivity to bring forth a productive and comfortable outcome for the child. I think such such an important question, and I, I think helpful to you know understand. I, I think the term noise is often misused and misunderstood, and just because it's loud doesn't mean it's necessarily noise. Um, but noise is sound. Okay, vibrations that can, that can cause psychological or physiological harm. 
And candidly, Terry, anything can be noise to somebody at a certain volume. So if it gets loud enough, it can be noise. Um, so it, it is this, this vibration that, that causes harm to our psyche and to our, our physical body. And there's been uh, an overwhelming amount of research uh, growing uh, in terms of the impact of noise in our environment. Uh, we write about this quite a quite a lot in Healing at the Speed of Sound. And just uh, after the book was published, we found a body of research done by um, the World Health Organization that looked at exposure of traffic noise on European citizens. So traffic noise above 55 decibels and found some startling data in terms of the impact on learning in children, on stress, uh, on cardiac health, and actually have now cited noise as the second leading environmental contributor to ill health in European society. Wow. So, so that would seem to say that sound stress, stress from sound, could conceivably negatively impact children in situations where they're expected to learn. Well, absolutely. So sound stress can raise body's uh, stress hormone cortisol. And when those cortisol levels get elevated, like when we're in a state of fight or flight, we're in a, we're in a survival mode, then much of the brain's learning mechanisms are actually shut down because our resources are devoted towards survival. So if we are, in fact, in a, in a state where we're being threatened or if the brain has a perception of a threat which can come through noise, the, the learning system essentially shuts down. You know, the child doesn't attend, doesn't process, doesn't engage with the information because they are very much in this state of, of self, self-protection. And the association with a noise, you know, say, for example, a fire alarm goes off and the child once had the experience of a fire alarm going off in the school, that can create a, a memory trace um, to the emotion associated with the feeling of that alarm going off, something sudden, unexpected, triggered a fear response because that was alerting the child to danger in their environment. So now when they're in that environment, they may have that memory and actually anticipate that event coming. And just anticipating that coming through the association of the environment can actually cause the stress response and impact their ability to attend and learn. That reminds me, and then we'll go to break, but that reminds me of the situation with um, kids who have gastrointestinal problems, and it's, you know, very painful to have a bowel movement. You often see them trying to have a bowel movement standing up. Um, but then when those um, gastrointestinal, um, those, those symptoms of pathology are taken care of, um, and they are not in as much pain from their GI system, they still have this fear that is associated with the pain they used, they used to have. And so that's when something like ABA comes in to then, you know, remediate the behavioral habits that developed because they had legitimate physiological pain from GI pathology. Right, and well, and we can uh, discuss later uh, what what's done with sound to uh, to help address those behaviors, much like ABA would in that circumstance. 
Wonderful. Okay. We're going to go to break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We want to thank our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back with Alex Doman and Healing at the Speed of Sound. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Alex Doman, founder and CEO of Advanced Brain Technologies, and we're talking about issues such as you'll find in his new book, Healing at the Speed of Sound. And Alex, um, what website can we look at to find out more about this book or purchase it? Uh, there is a, a website called healingatthespeedofsound.com uh, that is that is dedicated to the book, where there's um, sample sample writings, reviews, um, videos, and a number of resources, including including recordings of teleseminars uh, that my co-author and I, Dan, Don Campbell, and I do monthly for for our readers. Oh, wonderful! Okay, very good. Well, in the first segment, Alex, you mentioned um, something about myelination, and I've heard that another possible reason for auditory hypersensitivity is demyelination from toxins. And um, if listeners don't know what myelin is, it's the fatty sheath that um, is around the the cells in your brain, um, neurons that conduct information. And another thing that I heard was that... um, Auditory hypersensitivity can be related to a child's methylation status, and, and methylation actually helps us um, get rid of toxins. So these are issues that are involved in autism. Do you have an opinion on this? Well, I'm, I'm not a, an expert on the subject, Terry. Um, you know, I, I pers- on a personal level, have concerns naturally about the effects of neurotoxins uh, on, on brain chemistry, uh, particularly in particular in younger children before myelinization has taken place. You know, we have pathways which are susceptible, highly susceptible to their environment until that myelin sheath um, surrounds these pathways and protects them um, from, 
from toxins and, and other influences. So uh, in terms of the theory of auditory hypersensitivity being associated with demyelinization, uh, as an example, I mean, at a, at a fundamental level, if the pathways aren't protected and fully intact, then they don't route information through the white matter uh, the way that they should, and that is going to impact uh, the brain's perception of sound. But we aren't aware of all of the mechanisms of action associated with auditory hypersensitivity, and there are a number of theories. Um, one which I subscribed to for quite a long time and am still trying to better understand that is do we in fact have a underabundance of inhibitory neurons in the auditory cortex of the brain, uh, an inability to inhibit signals of auditory information coming through these neurons which activate our response to the sound. Um, so one theory being that there is... Um, too few inhibiting neurons. So when these sensory messages come to the brain, the brain can't block it out and becomes overloaded. Um, we, we don't know for sure what is happening uh, in these cases, and it's, it's an area that needs to be more, more fully researched. Well, um, I know that um, Dr. Emanuel Casanova has, I believe he's with the University of Louisville in Kentucky, he has done some very, very fine work on um, cortical mini columns and um, the size of these structures in the brain, and um, it indeed seems as if there's all of this sort of, um, I'll just use the word noise, you know, going on, going on in the brain um, because of the things that you're talking about. Um, and he's working on ways to uh, remediate the situation for children. I think we had an article in the first issue of Autism Science Digest about this, and if readers would like a copy of that, just uh, drop me a line at uh, taranga at autism1.org. So, you know, I want to ask you a kind of fun question, Alex. Uh, how is it that some of our kids can enjoy... We talked about, we talked about the difference between sounds that are soothing and sounds that are noise. How is it that our kids can enjoy listening to something a thousand times, but, like, if I listen to the same thing a thousand times, you know, the first five times it's fun, and the next 955 times it's, or 995 times it's noise? Well, it's a matter of whether or not that, that particular stimulus, say a song, for example, is triggering your brain's reward system or not. You know, as, as we know with... Um, you know, kids, whether uh, being autistic or uh, in the case of kids that are brain injured, that uh, engage in repetitive self-stimulatory behavior, uh, that they are getting something from that behavior. They're, they're feeling good. So it's enhancing, uh, impacting neurotransmitters that produce feel-good hormones, um, that make them feel good in response to the stimulus happening. And what turns them on may not turn you on. In fact, it may be quite the opposite, just as you and I may uh, vary very differently in terms of uh, our response to a particular song or style of music. So it, it can be quite individual. Okay. So I, I was only able to enjoy the Koala Brothers like five times, but I listened to uh, Badfinger for a whole weekend. So. <laughs> Okay. Right, so it's, you know, what turns you on? I think you started to address this question in the last segment, Alex, uh, about how different kinds of sound can generate 
measurable physiological changes. You started to talk about the study that was in Europe. So, you know, let's talk about that. And I think, you know, one thing is to understand, you know, how does sound influence us? You know, um, sound influences humans and animals, like on a psychophysiological level. So our, our state of mind is influenced based on our environmental influences. So what, what's affecting us? It affects our arousal levels, our expressive behaviors, our consciousness. So um, our emotions affect our mood and our temperament and our personality. So on, on a large level, you know, the sound around us has a huge influence on our body's chemistry uh, at, at many, many levels. So in terms of, you know, looking at how we can measure that, we have to understand that sound impacts and influences our blood pressure, our heart rate, our respiratory rate, hormone and neurotransmitter levels, and our brain function. So any psychophysiological or psychometric measurement of these functions can be used to monitor how sound is influencing us. Wait, you've said some really important things right there. You're connecting different all these different body systems like uh, you know, circulatory system and nervous system and such, you're connecting these physiological systems with mm, what you're calling psychology. And so often autism is erroneously regarded as you know, just something that's in the head, psychological or psychiatric. A lot of times I feel like professionals think our kids are walking around like a bunch of disembodied heads. But you're actually connecting the different systems of the body. How, how can you disconnect them? We are psychophysiological beings. Everything that affects us on a physiological level is going to have an impact on our psyche. We, we know this through our, through our own experiences and to kind of, as you say, disembody the head from the body uh, in our kids on the autism spectrum um, it is, you know, a, a stretch for me. Uh, it, it really is. Um, you know, have you ever had the impact, for example, uh, yourself, Terry, of experiencing a noxious sound? Can, can you think of a time that sound made you feel uncomfortable? Of course. Well, that first impacted your physiology. <laughs> your, your body was impacted, and then your, your brain responded to that physiological experience. So the, phys- the, the, physiolo- the physiology is what makes people go postal. It, it's a big part of it because it, it is part of our, our mood and our emotional regulation. So, ab- absolutely. Let's talk about pain. Can music influence an individual's level of pain? Well, certainly. You know, one, one thing that music does, and, you know, you, you may think about it, you know, a, a mother whose, you know, child has skinned his knee, and while she's putting on the Neosporin or a Band-Aid, she sings a song to comfort him. What does that singing do? It diverts him from the pain. So, and that's one of the things in pain management is how do we divert our attention from the pain and focus our, our mental energy towards something else. So that's one, one level in which we can block pain. But on another level, it's decreasing the associated stress 
to the pain. So there's a secondary benefit. And in our research, we're finding some scientists actually believe that certain music, in addition to diversion and de-stress, can actually help block the pain pathways that would otherwise transmit the pain impulses to the brain. So uh, certain types of music uh, can have a a great impact in people dealing with uh, pain management from chronic pain issues. Excellent. Okay. This is a good time to take a break. And, Alex, before we go to break, you told us about the website for Healing at the Speed of Sound. How about your website? Uh, The website for Advanced Brain Technologies is advancedbrain.com, and that's advanced with a D at the end. Okay, very good. We'll be right back from break with Alex Doman, and we want to thank our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Alex Doman of Advanced Brain Technologies, and we're talking about issues that we find in his book, Healing at the Speed of Sound. And where is this? Is this book available on Amazon, Alex? Yeah, Terry, the book's available on Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com, in your local bookstore. And the electronic books are available in the Kindle store and the Nook store, as well as in iBooks and iTunes. Okay, very good. And just to let our listeners know, we're going to be getting into remediation in a little while. I know we're talking about a lot of underlying issues, but um, Alex, what's the relationship among hearing and the other senses? 
Oh, that's that's such a great question. Is you know we've been as we've been talking, you know, sound has a pervasive influence on on our body, and the hearing sense, you know, interconnects with so many of our senses. You know, as we look at a just a functional level, the auditory system has direct connections with the facial nerve, uh, with the trigeminal nerve, with the ocular nerve, with with the vagal nerve for our, our vagal regulation. Uh, we detect sound through receptors in our ear, but also through our tactile system. Uh, you know, vibration affects our, our body. Um, you know, think of your skin as a giant ear. Uh, let, let's start with that, with that in mind. And these mechanoreceptors in the skin are picking up vibration in our environment, carrying it to our auditory system in addition to the sound that's traveling through what we traditionally think of as the ears, what we see, you know, on, on our on our head, the thing we hang earrings off of. Um, so there's actually a very profound uh, influence on uh, the auditory sense on our on our other senses. Um, okay. We, uh, with our work at Advanced Brain Technologies, we train and work with professionals from many, many fields that, that work with our programs. And these are, you know, visual optometrists. These are speech and language pathologists and occupational therapists and psychologists and, and physicians of different disciplines. And they find that using sound as a modality, it works as a pathway to influence the other sensory systems and to help get gains and changes in these systems far more rapidly than they would without engaging the auditory uh, sensory channel. So hearing supports other senses that have deficits. Hearing, well, if we think about it, our, if we have a deficit sense, our stronger sense is going to override that sense. So if we have a visual processing problem, we're going to rely on that auditory sense to take in more information from our environment. And, you know, the traditional thinking would be to, you know, help and enhance that strong sense. But what we actually want to do is we want to work and use the stronger sense to learn and from our environment and respond to it while also strengthening the sense that, that is weaker. So we actually want to work, work with both systems and then hopefully get, you know, equal influence from these, from these senses in our, in our system. But the brain is naturally built to protect itself and to function so that when we have have a sense that's deprived or an injury in the brain, that other parts of the brain take over. Uh, and in fact, you can have uh, areas in the brain that are dedicated for se- certain sensory stimulation begin to take over other areas uh, in the in the, po- in the uh, case of brain damage, uh, for example. And we're going to be talking about uh, brain injury in a little while. A- Alex, you also have. An interesting story. Would you like to share that with your listeners? Well, I've I've got a, a bit of an auditory story, and I and I touch on this a little bit in the book and and in some interviews. Um, you know, growing up, I uh, I was what we now see as a pretty classic profile of a kid who uh, turned out to be gluten and casein and sensitive, and my casein sensitivity led to. Um, a lot of uh, what we believe were dairy-caused uh, ear infections. 
So as a young child, I experienced a number of ear infections and ear fluid. And the ear fluid would occlude stimulation going to my brain to, you know, inform my auditory pathways throughout my lifetime. And the the infections, you know, had had an impact, and that impact resulted in some uh, auditory misperceptions, uh, and in myself, some auditory sensitivities. And you know, I you know, was challenged by this. You know, I, I was a good learner, but I always had to work harder to process. You know, auditory information, which is ironic because I work with the auditory system as a profession and have for for twenty years. But it was um, a certain part of my story that I <clears throat> want to share with parents, and that is that first, in fact, it it looks like diet played a role in the development of my auditory system. But my listening habits as a teenager. Uh, actually did real harm. And I used to go to a lot of concerts uh, in small venues and listen to very loud music. And I remember a particular concert where I experienced an acoustic trauma. Um, My hearing was actually damaged, and after the concert, I started hearing things. And what I was hearing were ringing tones um, that didn't exist in the environment but were actually being produced in my body, something called tinnitus. And that tinnitus uh, became progressively worse over time into, into where it was pretty continual in both ears. I would always hear this tone. And when I would get stressed, the tone would get louder. And I was able to um, be one of the fortunate few that was able to remediate and overcome uh, my tinnitus. But at times, uh, that tinnitus will come up for just a few seconds, and that has become my body's alarm clock. And that alarm clock is telling me, or I should say alarm, uh, that my stress levels are too high and that I, need to, that I need to slow down. So it actually works as a great tool for me. Um, but uh, on a very personal level, uh, I've experienced the discomfort and the pain, uh, the annoyance that comes through sounds that I find uncomfortable uh, or annoying and can say it has a big impact on social relationships and emotional responses to things. You hear something, Terry, that just annoys you and you can't shut it out. Uh, that has a big impact on your mood, your attention, your ability to, to you know, interact with others. How interesting. Well, with kids with autism, we often talk about first removing that which is bad, such as casein that you mentioned, and then adding that which is good, such as, you know, nutritional supplementation that will help nourish the brain. Uh, how does that apply to sound? Well, in terms of sound, we can think, first of all, is what's bad is noise. So noise is, you know, what's going to cause us psychological, psychological or physiological harm. And what's noise to me may not be noise to you, but at a certain threshold, um, we need to look at our home environment and pay attention to the places in which our, our kids uh, with autism are spending their time and is it a supportive sound environment or is it a noxious sound environment? If we experience it as uncomfortable, um, we could suppose that it may be uncomfortable for our child or simply um, observe their behaviors in that space and remove the noisy influences within the space. You know, for example, if you're doing a behavior or neurodevelopmental program with your child, don't do it you know, near noisy appliances just as one example, or under an HVAC vent, 
uh, or in a room with fluorescent lights that they may be highly attuned and sensitive to that are going to distract them and make them feel uncomfortable. Okay, and, wait. Are you saying it's not the flickering of the fluorescent lights, it's the sound of the fluorescent lights? Uh, not only the flickering, but we've, we work with kids that have such hyperauditory systems. They are, they are experiencing uh, the very, very high-frequency vibration coming from those lights as an auditory experience. Okay, so for kids with autism, so many of whom have auditory hypersensitivity, it's not just the volume of the sound of the noise. It could be bacon sizzling in a pan. It could be white noise. Uh, What are the kinds of explanations for the sensitivities to these frequencies? It's such a a complex conversation, and it's um, an onion where we're peeling back one layer at a time, Terry. Uh, again, the traditional view has been that there is select frequency sensitivity. And to kind of explain that very briefly, the auditory system is, is set up with these many columns of nerve fibers of cells that start in the cochlea, which are called the cilia or the hair cells. And different bundles of hair cells process different frequencies or tones of sound. And then the integrity of that system is carried through to the auditory cortex where there are neuron bundles that also respond to those same frequencies. So when you stimulate those cells in the ear, those cells in the brain respond and we consciously recognize that sound. So much of the theory has been that uh, certain sounds we don't inhibit and they create too much noise in the brain, if you will, and we experience that as pain or discomfort. Another way to view this is through a non-classical auditory pathway as opposed to the classical auditory pathway. And this non-classical pathway involves our emotional regulation system and that, in fact, that the environment is such and the association with this sound is something which causes distress. And, you know, I'll I'll give an example. one of my children, my uh, younger stepson, when we go to the movies, this is a child who has exhibited auditory hypersensitivity throughout his life. And when we go to the movies, he will keep his, and this is getting better and better uh, through training, but when we go to the movies, he will keep his hands up just behind his head on both sides, ready to cover his ears. Yeah. Why is he doing that? Is that a behavioral thing? It's behavioral. It's emotional because he associates being in the theaters with an experience of a loud sound, which he found uncomfortable. So he anticipates that's going to take place. And we work and we work and work until we help him understand that he's safe and it's comfortable and that he's going to be okay with that. Um, But still that fear association exists with him. Oh. And yet, years ago, I talked to a mom who said something to me about those fibers in the ears having gotten messed up from a toxin called uh, mercury. Have you ever heard about that? I think she was talking about the fibers in the ears being gunked up or impaired or something like damaged. Well, one one thing to understand, you know, these these cells in the ear, when they're damaged, they don't regenerate. Okay, oh, my gosh. So, so these... These uh, cilia in human beings um, don't grow back if they're damaged, and they can become damaged from neurotoxins, and they can become damaged through excessive noise exposure, uh, through both means. And once those fibers 
are impacted, they're not going to fire and transmit uh, information um, with, with the same accuracy or at the same amplitude as they would normally. So they misfire, if you will, and then the brain is not getting the right signals. Um, that likely p- plays a role in some instances, and this could be in the fact where a, a child has had a viral infection or exposure to neurotoxins, which have affected these uh, these fibers and thus the auditory pathways. And then we have the the other mode of association of of a experience that's going to be painful or uncomfortable, um, or an experience where we feel unsafe and the behaviors are going to look the same. We're going to cover our ears. Uh, we're going to avoid the circumstance. We're going to, dis- we're going to display fight-flight responses to that event, whether it in fact is going to be painful or we're going to ex- perceive that it's going to be. We react in the same way. Very good information to know. Well, we're going to take a break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, and we'll be back with Alex Doman talking about healing at the speed of sound. Thank you to our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness, radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We are back with Alex Doman, and we're talking about healing at the speed of sound. And, Alex, can you just remind people about the website, please? Uh, the uh, website for the book is healingatthespeedofsound.com. All right. And um, we're having such a great time having this discussion and sharing this wonderful information with listeners. Uh, and we promised to talk about not just the the theory and the science behind everything that we're talking about, but also remediation, really productive roads for remediation to help. And uh, Alex has kindly agreed to come back with us here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Tuesday, February 7th, same time, same, same station. So we'll talk about different therapeutic modalities then as well. Alex, we said in the last segment that we were going to talk about brain injury, to which you alluded. How can music help individuals with brain injury, uh, for example, regain speech? Well, I think it's helpful 
you know, to consider that music is something that's part of each of us. Um, you know, on, on an emotional level, we, we all respond to music at, at one point or another. So whether we're, um, you know, healthy and functioning well or have experienced a brain trauma, um, we, we benefit from the music that, that's in our environment. In terms of helping somebody to regain speech, uh, that, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, after brain injury or stroke, for example, my grandfather uh, practiced as a uh, physiatrist, a doctor of physical medicine rehabilitation. And one of the ways that he would um, help his patients regain speech after stroke or brain injury was actually by getting them to sing. And he was able to help them express themselves musically and through singing uh, before spoken words came. And uh, very interestingly, a uh, doctor at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Gottfried Schlag, has developed a form of music rehabilitation for uh, post-stroke aphasia called melodic intonation therapy, in which the uh, patient is really taught to speak through melody and engaging, you know, one brain center to then help inform and, and make it easier for them to speak through the language center later. So uh, music can um, play a, a very profound role in, in helping recovery uh, from, brain, from brain injuries, including um, speech and motor impairments. Yeah, I've noticed that there are children who are considered nonverbal but they can sing and they can do intraverbals, you know, like they do in verbal behavior, filling in words in songs when their parents are singing. So, it, again, you know, as we, as we look at music and language function in the brain, this is, this is an area of, of real interest in the neurosciences today. And you, you very much have uh, two camps. One is that language preceded music, uh, evolutionarily, and the converse, that music came before language and that we had a prototype language that was musical before we had um, language in, in human beings. So that, that debate will carry on and, and continue to be looked at by anthropologists and neuroscientists of, of different perspectives. Uh, one in particular uh, who I'm quite interested in follow is Dr. Anarud Patel at the Neuroscience Institute in San Diego. Uh, that wrote a, a great text on it called Language, Music, and the Brain. And the summary of this is that there are shared and separate centers for language and music processing within the brain. But in fact, music does appear to influence these language centers. And when we can't communicate through music or through language, music appears to be a primer to help us to do so. Really fascinating. I'm really so pleased that you're sharing this information with our listeners. So before, uh, before we take a break and um, then have listeners rejoin us to hear you on February 7th, let's talk about some practical take-home messages and strategies um, to make sounds therapeutic in uh, the daily life of children and how the home environment can be made more comfortable sound-wise. Great. Great, Terry. Uh, love, love to do so. I think the first thing is to appreciate that if, you're, if your child is exhibiting signs of auditory sensitivity, 
to accept that their experience is that they are sound sensitive, uh, whether they're experiencing pain or the behaviors are based on, on associations with pain or discomfort to, to not get upset with the child when you see that or not to be frustrated appreciate that they are, in fact, at some level in the body's natural stress response of fight or flight. So how can we initially um, remove some of these things or avoid these circumstances? However, conversely, we don't want to necessarily make maladaptive responses. What we want to do is we want to help provide treatment, which is going to help that child to be comfortable in these sound experiences, but our, our first inclination is protect them, keep them away from the pain, and that's naturally what a parent's going to do. So remove the influences that are causing pain or discomfort, but try not to do it to a point in which it is so maladaptive that they that they can't function. Um, but, but in fact, well, some parents have kids that can't leave the house um, because they're so afraid of sound in their environment, absolutely. And that means we need to keep them in that safe place and then work to remediate, um, you know, what's wrong and help them to where they, they can go to, uh, to outside environments and more fully engage and participate in life to provide them with good, positive sound experiences. So bring good instrumental music in the home. Keep in mind the music of slower tempos of lower than 60 beats per minute of lower frequency sounds can help slow body rhythms calm and relax the child, where faster tempos, say, of 100 beats per minute and higher of full-frequency sounds of like high-charging rock may stimulate them and give them energy, but conversely, it may actually over-arouse them and overstimulate them. So pay attention to how your child responds to the sounds in their environment and use that as a cue in terms of what to give them to support them, make them feel comfortable, and uh, have a happier, more productive day. Absolutely. Well, Alex, I want to thank you again for sharing this really interesting information and um, agreeing to come back on February 7th to talk about some of the different therapeutic, practical therapeutic modalities. And in the meantime, listeners can um, access a copy of your book, Healing at the Speed of Sound, whether through Amazon or Nook or Kindle, um, visit the website healingatthespeedofsound.com, and there will be a short quiz about this book on the next program, and I'll give away my favorite Badfinger album. Um, so, uh, Alex, I want to thank you for being here. Terry, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and we'll be happy to, to see you back on the show. Alex will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2012 conference, which is being held May 23rd through 27th. Registration is, again, free at www.autismone.org. My guest next week is Dr. Patrick Flynn. And don't forget the Health Freedom Expo in Long Beach, California, March 2nd through 4th. Please visit www.healthfreedomexpo.com. Autism One will have some wonderful speakers there, too. Thank you to this program's sponsor, OxyHealth, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.